I want to begin this morning uh, with a prayer by A.W. Tozer uh, that I thought was particularly appropriate for this passage. Let's pray together. O Lord God Almighty, not the God of the philosophers and the wise, but the God of the prophets and apostles, and better than all, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, may I express thee unblamed. They that know you not may call upon you as other than you are, and so worship not you, but a creature of their own fancy. Therefore, enlighten our minds that we may know you as you are, so that we may perfectly love you and worthily praise you. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. 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 I'd be grateful if you'd grab a Bible, and uh, in your pew Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 1 and 2. It's on page 1021, 1021. And last week we started a series on 1 John by looking at the prologue, the first four verses, and it's all about the eternal Son of God being made manifest through His incarnation, through taking on human flesh. And the author of this epistle was obviously an eyewitness of these events, right? Because he talks not just about what he had heard, but also about that which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. And I think verse 2 gives a good summary of John's testimony. It says that the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you what what life was, was made manifest. The eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And so... Um, he, he came so that we could have fellowship with each other. And, and I think that's, you know, if, if verse 2 is a good summary of, of what the message of John was, um, verse 3 describes why. Why did Jesus came? And it's because God in his love was seeking a relationship with us. He came so that he could have fellowship with us and that we could have fellowship with one another. So Jesus came to reconcile man to God. So that's sort of the vertical aspect of the cross, man to God, and then also man to man. So that's the horizontal aspect of the cross. <laughs> and so um, just to, just to kind of draw this out a little bit. So we have the Trinity here. Uh, existing eternally in glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This line represents the fact that God is transcendent. He doesn't exist sort of like up in outer space. He exists in a different realm. Um, God is spirit. And this represents earth. And we could say that this, uh, this little man here, how about that's, uh, that's, the, that's the Apostle John, right? <laughs> and um, what John is saying is that the eternal life, which was with the Father before the foundation of the world, was made manifest to us. And we have seen him with our eyes, and we have looked upon him and have touched him with our hands. And so John was able to communicate with the eternal word, with the eternal Son of God. That's what it's saying about the incarnation. And um, what he's saying next is that 
Through what Jesus came to do, Jesus ultimately came to die on the cross. He's able to renew broken fellowship between us and God and broken fellowship between us and one another. Uh, in fact, it says in John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So there's no limit to this offer. John is saying, this is something that Jesus has done, and I'm holding it out for the world. Anyone who wants to come into relationship with God can come through the Son, Jesus. And so it's a free offer of forgiveness, an offer of free forgiveness and eternal life to anyone who wants it. And even if you've heard it a thousand times and you've not yet responded, it's open to you right now. And even if this is your first time hearing the gospel, you've never heard it, this is your first time coming to the church, that relationship is open to you right now. Not like three months from now or three years from now or whatever. It's open to you right now. John wants you to know about the availability of fellowship with God. I remember years back, my friend Megan was hosting an international student for tea at her house. And uh, in the course of their conversation, she opened up the scriptures to the student. And they were looking at John chapter 3, which talks about being born again. And it talks about, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. And when they finished reading this passage and they finished reading that verse, the international student looks at her and he goes, that's what I want. I want eternal life. And uh, she was sort of taken aback. She's like, uh... You want that now? <laughs> and she thought he might need a few months, right? But no, he was ready. And so, and he was like, yeah, that, that's what I want. I want that. And so uh, she said, okay, I guess we can pray together and talk to God about that. And so this man, this brilliant PhD student from China, prayed and gave his life to Jesus right there in her dining room. And the amazing thing is that it stuck. He never looked back. He was in church with us every week after that for the duration of his time in Tallahassee. And then after he moved from Tallahassee to Gainesville, I had friends in a church over there and they're like, yeah, we see him every Sunday. I was like, that's crazy. <laughs> he was just ready for a relationship with God. He was ready for eternal life. He knew I don't have that, but that's what I want. That's what I was looking for. So instantly he went from being an outsider to having a relationship with God and being a member of the fellowship of the saints. That's available to everyone. But what does it mean to have a relationship with God? How is this relationship established? And here the Apostle John really likes to use mystical language. He actually uses uh, less words than any other author in the New Testament, uh, but his words are always mystical and they have all kinds of special meanings. So he talks about um, being in him in chapter 2, and abiding in him, which is nothing short of saying that our being and God's being have some kind of weird overlap with each other. We're being swept up into the eternal life of the Trinity so that, that the life of God is coursing through us and he's uniting us to himself. Last week, Pastor John pointed out that um, true Christianity is not simply a matter of behaving in certain ways for God. Now, it is that, but it's, it's much more than that. 
And he said true Christianity is not just believing certain things about God. It is that, but it's actually much more than that. True Christianity ultimately boils down to being in God. It's a matter of being, not just believing and behaving. And that's what Jesus was talking about in our gospel reading today from John 14. Uh, If you want to turn there with me, flip there to John chapter 14. In verse 17, I'm going to try to continue to sketch this out for you. So in John 14, 17, the Son talks about asking the Father to send the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But he says, you know him, for he dwells in you and will be with you. So when we put our trust in Jesus and we put our trust in his cleansing work for us on the cross, what happens is Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he ascends to heaven. And he asks the Father to send the Holy Spirit to live in us. So this is real. Like, when you are cleansed, when your soul is cleansed by the blood of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, really comes and takes up residence in your life. This is not just pious jargon. This is a radiant reality that the New Testament just assumes. It's just a sheer fact. Right? And so the Holy Spirit comes to live inside you. And then, this is amazing... The Spirit unites us to the Son and by extension to the Father. So Jesus says in verse 20 in in John 14, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, unites us to the Son. You know that's Paul's favorite phrase in the New Testament, right? In Christ. We're in Christ. So we're united with the Son. And by being united with the Son, we're also united with the Father, right? And so we're wrapped up into the life of the Trinity. Now, I wrote that sketch because it underlies everything that John teaches in this epistle, but we don't usually think about it like that. We usually think about, like, I'm a Christian that just means I'm trying to behave myself, right? Or that I vote a certain way. Or I'm a Christian, that just means that I believe certain things. Like, I would sign off that I agree with the Nicene Creed or something like that. But what's being talked about in John is a radiant reality. He's talking about a fundamental change in our being that comes from faith in Christ. That comes from being baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So these things things are, uh, are more than what they appear. Uh, so I'm going to leave that, leave that sketch up there. Now flip back with me to 1 John chapters 1 and 2. And we pick up on verse 5, which is central to the whole book. It says, this is the message we heard from them. So John says that when we were talking face to face with Jesus, this is what he told us. That God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, you may remember in the story of creation in Genesis chapter 1, that on the first day, God creates light. He says, let there be light. But interestingly, it's not until the fourth day that God actually creates the sun, 
and the moon and the stars to give light to the terrestrial world. And so what's that about? Like, how is it that there was light before there was the sun? Now, it's not like the ancient Hebrews were confused about the source of light. They knew as well as we do that our terrestrial light comes from the sun. But in their context, there were many different tribes and people who worshipped the sun as a god. And God wanted to make it clear that he is the ultimate source. Right? That the sun is not a god, but is itself dependent upon God, just like all of creation. Because God is transcendent, and he spoke everything into existence. Flipping forward all the way to the last pages of the Bible, from the first pages to the last pages of the Bible, the book of Revelation picks up on this imagery when it describes the new creation in the new Jerusalem. It says in Revelation 21-23 that the city has no need for the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The Lamb is the light of the city of God. So we turn back to John, to what we learn directly from Jesus, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And we know he's not talking about just terrestrial light. On a more basic level, on a more foundational level, this is a statement about God's utter and absolute perfection. God is perfect in truth and perfect in goodness. To say that God is light is to say that he sees everything crystal clear. 100% accurately. He's not, he's, he's, he's completely unbiased in his perspective. He takes every detail into account. There is no darkness at all before the pure and penetrating gaze of God. But also, to say that God is light is to affirm that God is morally flawless. You guys know that? It seems like the kind of thing that, yeah, we just sign off on that. But like, let that sink in for a second. God is morally flawless, perfect in love, perfectly just, perfectly good, perfect in mercy. There is no defect in God's character that we have to worry about. There's nothing ugly that he's hiding behind his back. God has never had an evil intention pass through his mind. He has never done something or made a judgment about something that was mixed with a tinge of evil or bias. <coughs> Another way to put it is that God is morally unassailable. In him, there is no darkness at all. And any one of us that has ever had a charge against God, and this is not uncommon even among the saints in the Bible, <coughs> And I'm not saying it's unforgivable to question or to have a doubt, but on a foundational level, we must reckon with the fact that God is never wrong. God will never render an unjust verdict. And God loves us and loves the people we love more than we could possibly ever hope to. That's the kind of God we're dealing with. Is that the kind of God that you have in your mind when you pray? When you're sitting in your bed at night, when you're going about your day, when you show up at Sunday for worship. If that's not your view of God, then we need to revisit this foundational testimony of Jesus who says, Hey, look, 
I came from there. I know. A.W. <laughs> Tozer once said that the whole outlook of mankind might be changed if we could all believe that we dwell under a friendly sky and that the God of heaven, though exalted in power and majesty, is eager to be friends with us. But how can we know that we are a friend of God? Or in the language of 1 John, how can we know that we have fellowship with him? Chapter 1, verse 6. Or be assured that we have come to know him. Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. In the book Knowing God, J.I. Packer tells a story of a scholar who has forfeited his prospects of academic advancement because he didn't shy away from his commitment to biblical faith in light of his enemies. But it doesn't matter, he would go on to say, for I've known God, and they haven't. Packer wrote that that remark was a mere parenthesis, a a passing comment on something that I said, but it struck me and it set me to thinking. He continues, not many of us, I would think, would ever naturally say that we have come to know God. The words imply a definiteness and a matter of factness of experience to which most of us, if we are honest, have to admit that we are still strangers. What does it mean to truly know God? What does it look like when we know Him? Well, these were all relevant questions for the community that John was writing to because in context, in chapter 2, we learn that a sizable group had recently peeled off from their Christian fellowship. This wayward group began claiming um, like a sinless spiritual perfection. And, uh, and ironically, at the same time, they were living in open disobedience to Jesus' commands. And later on, we see that this group began teaching odd things about the nature of Christ, which were contrary to the message of the apostles and the eyewitnesses. Now, the thing that makes <clears throat> all of this even more confusing is that this breakaway, breakaway group still thought of themselves as Christians in, in some form or another. And so the community that... that was left and I had questions for John are these people that left us are they are they Christians and what about us who are left how can we be confident that we truly know God and have eternal life so this is the historical and pastoral context of first John and John's purpose in writing is to encourage them that they do really know the Lord and to warn them not to follow in the way of the deserters who have shown themselves to be imposters. That's what he will come to say. And to that end, John provides several litmus tests throughout this epistle so that we can be confident about whether, in fact, we do know God. So, for example, there's a belief component. What do we believe about Jesus? And there's a communal component. Do we remain in the fellowship? There's a love component. If we don't love our brother or sister who we have seen, how can we claim to love God whom we have not seen, right? And so we'll get to all these things in due time. But in this passage specifically, John talks about a sin component. How does knowing God affect our attitude towards sin in our relationship to God's commandments? And since God is light, John's key phrase is that we are called to walk in the light. We're called to walk in the light of God. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. 
He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So that's what we want. We want to walk in the light as he is in the light. We don't want to be self-deceived like, the desert, like these deserters who say they have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness. They say they have no sin and make Christ out to be a liar. They say, I know him, but they don't do his commandments. This is a constant phrase in 1 John. If we say, if we say, if we say, and the point is clear, being a Christian is more than just saying so. Because what if what we're saying doesn't line up with the reality? This invisible faith claim we make that, that we have a relationship with God, there should be a visible manifestation of that in our lives. And John writes this letter to encourage this community. He's not trying to kind of upset them or get them to you know, just be constantly questioning their salvation. He wants them to know how they can have assurance, how they can be set in, in a place of confidence about their relationship with God and what to look for. What are the signs to look for? So John gives us our first litmus test, which he calls walking in the light. And according to John, this always involves two things. All right? These are very important. Confession. So acknowledging the presence of sin in our lives and receiving the forgiveness of Christ. That's part of what walking in the light means. Number two, obedience. Repudiating the sin in our lives and seeking to obey the commands of Christ. So to put it another way, being a Christian means that we are serious about both confessing and avoiding sin. You can't, you can't be a Christian and just have one of those things. Right? So if we never admit that something is wrong, that something is rank in our lives, then we're walking in darkness. And if we show little care or concern about the commands of Christ and whether, whether we sin at all, we're walking in darkness. At first glance, I think confession and obedience appear to be at odds with one another. Because if we're really serious about obedience, why would we have anything to confess? <laughs> but John knows that none of us are finished in this life, and there's only one who is sinless, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so he brings confession and obedience together to help us to have a more holistic understanding of what the Christian life is going to look like for everyone who follows Jesus going forward. It's always going to look like confession. It's always going to look like a call to obedience. The same person who said in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, also said a few verses later, and by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The same person who says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now that's a really serious claim. There actually have been Christians down through the ages who have claimed sinless perfection. And what John says here is that that's a lie. It's, it's actually worse than just a lie. It's actually blasphemy. 
Because it makes Christ out to be a liar because he claimed that he died for our sins. So if we claim we have no sins, we're putting our word against Christ's work. The same author later says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So we lie if we claim to be without sin. And we lie if we say, I know him, but don't keep his commandments. Keep these two things together, guys. These two realities are brought together literally back to back at the beginning of chapter 2. When John says... And, and when Bev said to us, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's a, that's a noble aim. Right? Sometimes I, I, I think that um, in the church we can diminish the value of seeking to avoid sin. Mm-hmm. This is a noble aim. I'm writing this to you. The reason why I'm penning this, I'm writing it so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the advocate. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he makes his appeal for us on the basis of his righteousness. So John brings confession and obedience together because walking in the light for us in this life will always involve both. On the one hand, walking in the light of God causes us to see our sins more clearly, which leads us to confession, right? As Sarah was saying to the kids, we take a shower with the light on, right? So we don't miss a huge spot. In John 16, 8, Jesus taught that the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So ironically, we don't oftentimes talk about this aspect of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit is the way that we become more aware of our unholiness. This has been the testimony of the most godly saints down through the ages, that their sin, which seems so minuscule to others, it might seem so minuscule to us, oh, to have the sins of that saint. <laughs> but they saw it, they said, this is, this is not right. My life is not right with God. The closer they drew to him, the more they were conscious of the deeper washing that they still needed. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, walking in the light transforms us. It causes us to become more luminous, which is the basis of our obedience. Transformation offered in Christ. We become a chip off the old block and begin to take on the holy qualities of the Father and the Son. In the words of one Bible commentator, the test of our religious experience is whether it produces a reflection of the life of Jesus in our daily life. If it fails this elementary test, it is false. That's what chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 means when it says, By this we know that we are in him. By this we know that this has happened. How do we know that? Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If we are truly in him, there is a connection of our beings. There's an ontological connection between us and Christ. We abide in him and his nature. We become partakers of it and it begins to heal our nature. 
That's what, this, that's what theologians would call sanctification. We're being made more and more holy because of our connection with Jesus. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So let me summarize and begin to draw to a close. We began by talking about the incarnation of Jesus and how it means that God is that eager to become friends with us. That eager to offer relationship. And there are really two reasons why we pull back from this offer. One is shame over our sin, which is overcome by confession to a merciful God. And the other is an unwillingness to obey, which is overcome by trusting obedience. It would have been better for Adam and Eve not to hide in the bushes, right? God had a better life for them than they had planned for themselves in the shadows, right? That's the case for us, too. God doesn't want us to come to him so that he can just kind of heap all kinds of rules on our shoulders. I think sometimes we think about God as almost like kind of like a, like a cosmic hall monitor or like a safety patrol. Were any of you guys safety patrols? You know, where you have the kind of belt and the, and the badge and the sash and oh, stuff yeah. like that? And you're an empowered, you know, eight-year-old or a 14-year-old or whatever. And you just, you set people right in terms of the rules. And they have to listen to you. But they're probably not friends with you. <laughs> and we think that, uh, that that's what God's like. And we're not interested in a relationship with that kind of God. Not surprisingly. But God wants us to come to know him. That our joy might be made complete. Jesus said, I came that you might have joy and have it to the full. Jesus said, anyone who tries to keep his life will lose it. You can hide in the shadows. You will lose your life. But anyone who loses his life for my sake will truly find it. And we have to confess. And we have to be serious about obedience. Because Jesus is both Savior and Lord. There's only one Jesus. There's not two. He's both Savior and Lord. So to receive the one Jesus is to receive both. If he's not both for you, then he's neither. When we confess our sins, we are covered by the righteous status of Christ. Though our lives are not yet there, though we're not yet fully transformed, we have an advocate with the Father. Amen? Amen. And when we obey Christ, it's because we're being transformed by our union with the righteous nature of Christ. And what he has is becoming our own. Both of these things rely on faith in God's essential goodness. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all, no hidden intentions. Tozer writes, but sin has made us timid and self-conscious, as well it might. Years of rebellion against God have bred in us a fear that cannot be overcome in a day. The captured rebel does not enter willingly into the presence of the king he has so long fought unsuccessfully to overthrow. But if he is truly penitent, he may come, trusting only in the loving kindness of the Lord. And the past will not be held against him. 
I'm going to end this morning by taking one minute of silence to make space for confession and obedience. What I want to do is just have a minute of silence before John continues this, this service. And um, if there's something that you need to confess to the Lord, something specific you need to confess to the Lord, or maybe you've just sort of been blind to the idea that sin is a serious thing, then I want to make this space for you to confess that to the Lord, to walk in the light. And then also, during this time, we can only, obedience is going to happen probably after we leave this church. But we can make a resolve and say to the Lord, I trust you. I trust that you're a good father. I trust that you're a good king. I trust that you have good intentions, that you wish my joy, you wish my fullness. And I intend to obey you in that thing that I had previously resolved to disobey you in. So make that commitment to God and ask him for help. Ask him for help and he'll continue to heal, peel back the different layers of our hearts. But this is what it means to walk in the light, to confess our sins to the Lord and to commit ourselves to obedience.